Welcome to Love, Lead, Listen, a podcast from Alpha Gamma Delta. I'm your host, Emily Bice. Join us as we discuss topics that affect women of today and examine the ways that we can be women with purpose. Hello, and welcome back to Love, Lead, Listen. Over the past few months, our world has been significantly changed by the coronavirus pandemic. We've all seen our daily lives change from the toilet paper stockpiles to working from home. And I, like many of you, have had a lot of questions in the past few months. Well, today's guest is here to give us some answers. Liz York, one of our sisters from Gamma Phi Chapter at the Georgia Institute of Technology, is a senior advisor for buildings, facility strategy, and innovation at the CDC. But recently, she's been working as a partner call lead during the coronavirus pandemic. Liz, welcome. Thank you, Emily. I'm really glad to be here today. We're so happy to have you. So Liz, you're the Senior Advisor for Buildings and Facility Strategy and Innovation at the CDC. So how did you get involved with the COVID-19 response? So it's a great question, Emily. A lot of people ask me how an architect has something to do with the COVID-19 response. But whenever we have a health threat like COVID-19, CDC pulls together a response and they need people from all across the agency to basically put our regular jobs on hold or on kind of the back burner and volunteer to join the response itself. It's tough work. It's it's long hours, but it's really rewarding in many ways. And I was really pleased to be able to volunteer to help. So first of all, it's rewarding in that I'm contributing to the most important issue of the day, and I'm doing what I can do to help people know what they need to do to stay healthier. Secondly, I'm learning. I I make it a habit to try to learn as much as I can all the time. I'm learning about COVID-19, about vaccinations, about infectious disease science, and basically how to communicate during a crisis. And, um, I guess the the other reason why I'm I'm really glad to be doing the response is it's given me a sense of purpose and allowed me to give my gifts to the response when other people around the agency are tapped out. You know, sustainability and innovation in facilities management are still important issues, and I'll get back to those shortly, but right now is an ideal time to pause that important work and focus on the urgent crisis of the time. Absolutely. Well, I want to dive right into some of the questions I have. And one of those is, in an October 2nd CDC report, it showed that young people had the highest incidence of COVID-19, with 20 to 29-year-olds accounting for greater than 20% of all confirmed cases. Can you tell me a little bit of the factors that increase transmission of COVID-19 between young adults? Yeah, sure. So first of all, you know, you're talking about a report and the October 2nd report. I bet it's an MMWR. And let me talk a little bit about MMWRs for everybody um, on the call. You might say, well, what is that? It's it's a report. It's called the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, but we just call it MMWR for short. And CDC publishes this report, different science every single time. And it's known as the voice of CDC. Basically, scientists around the country and the world are working diligently to better understand how COVID-19 illness affects patients and communities, and CDC rigorously reviews and publishes this public health information and recommendations in the MMWR. And um, basically, over the response, we've had more than 100 of these reports that have been published online, and you can find them on the CDC website. 
I want you to remember MMWR. So when I say it later, you know what I'm talking about. It's basically just a report that we do on the science. So back to your question, <laughs> there was an MMWR report also on October 9th that talks about the factors that increase transmission for young people. The report from October 9th describes how a county in Wisconsin, it's Winnebago County, I don't know if anybody's from there, but that it experienced an increase in COVID-19 cases, the largest of which was among young adults aged 18 to 23. And these researchers uh, had interviews with young adults in the county, and they gathered insights on the attitudes and perceptions that influence the risk behavior of these young adults in the area. They found that misinformation, conflicting messages, opposing views regarding masks, social or peer pressure, perceived severity of disease outcome, and perceived personal responsibility to others were all cited as factors influencing behaviors such as wearing masks and attending social gatherings. So there's a lot there, you know, to unpack. I don't think we'll get to all of that today, but just basically those were the things that these researchers found that young people were were saying were influencing, um, you know, their behavior. And I personally, I was amazed to read that some young adults were going back to work or they were going to social events and they were not wearing masks, even when they felt sick because of a perception that the disease was not really that bad or because they were getting conflicting information. Yeah, I'm also amazed to hear that as well. And that kind of brings me to my next question of, especially when the coronavirus first began, a lot of young people assumed that they just wouldn't experience severe symptoms if they contracted COVID-19. Has this been the case? Well, you know, although young adults are reported to experience lower risks for severe disease and death from COVID-19, they can still experience severe disease themselves and they can transmit the infection to others at higher risk for severe illness. So, you know, it's kind of like, yes, they can have symptoms, but they can pass this on to others. And that's a huge danger. Adults of any age with underlying medical condition, for example, being overweight, having diabetes, being pregnant or um, being a smoker, you may be at increased risk for severe illness, you know, illness where you may be hospitalized. While COVID is new and we're still learning about long-term effects, reports of persistent symptoms in people who recovered from COVID-19 have emerged with the most commonly reported symptoms, including fatigue, indigestion, cough, stiff joints, and chest pain. So anybody can get those symptoms and they can persist. That's what we're finding right now. Yeah, I think that's important for a lot of young people to hear that you can definitely get it and have those symptoms and persisting. You just mentioned the young adults transmitting the disease. In that same MMWR that I mentioned earlier, it also claimed that young people contributed to community transmission of COVID-19. So first of all, what exactly is community transmission? And how have younger people contributed to it? Yeah, sure. That's a great question, Emily. So community transmission, it's, it's not as mystifying as it sounds. It really just means that people have been infected with the virus in an area or in a community, including some people who aren't sure where they got it or how they became infected. You could consider uh, each college and university as a community, or you could think about a group of universities being a community. For example, the group of colleges in Boston, Massachusetts comes to mind. That would be a community. 
So in terms of how do young people contribute, there's some more MMWRs I want to mention. So (laughs) the first one, (laughs) um, the October 2nd MMWR talks about how cases in different age ranges changed over the summer. And the report talks about how positive tests for young adults rose and, you know, imagine a graph. And then four to 15 days later, positive tests for older adults rose similarly. So you have a rising curve for the 20 to 29-year-olds, and then a few days later, a rising curve for cases for people over 60. And that suggests strongly that younger adults may have contributed to the spread of COVID-19 in their larger community. And basically, younger adults are getting getting the disease, and then they're taking it home and giving it to their parents and their grandparents and, you know, other older adults. And this, you know, kind of makes sense. I mean, young adults are social, they're meeting with other people, they're out there busy and, and, you know, active, and then they're connecting with their, you know, elders in their community. And um, then that's where those people who may not be outside or, you know, going to the going to the grocery store or doing stuff, kind of picking it up from their younger family members or colleagues. I think the importance of addressing COVID-19 among young adults is underscored by a second MMWR, which was about a week later. It talks about hot spot counties if you're, you know, looking online to find this. And basically it says that from June 1st to July 31st, there were 767 hotspot counties that were detected representing about 63% of the U.S. population. And in those hotspots, the earliest increases in both number of cases and positivity was among young adults. So that's aged 18 to 24. And the increases in that age group appeared to drive increases in other age groups. So it's not not great news, but you know, at least we're starting to see the patterns. And that's when, you know, people can start to say, oh, I have a part to play in this. And so what can I do to to play a better part? That is so fascinating to me just to hear the different patterns that you can see emerging. And it obviously sounds like young adults really do play a big role in this. They do. Definitely. Yes. So earlier you did mention that conflicting messages and opposing views are a factor among young adults. And it feels like many Americans have heard false information regarding COVID-19 at some point. And I know I've come across a lot of misconceptions stemming from that false information. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions people have about COVID-19 and how are those harmful? So it's a great question. Um, I'm, again, it's going to take me a, a minute or two to kind of unpack it, but let me start talking about communication in general. So most emergencies are really susceptible to communication errors, misunderstandings, mistrust, and even simple mistakes can cause conflicting messages to emerge. And you know, you've seen that. Like one day our website says one thing and the next day we had to make changes due to, you know, maybe edits that weren't picked up. But easy things can create misunderstandings or mistrust. Rumors and misinformation regarding COVID are going to continue to pop up on social media. Um, they may even find their way into the conversations people have with family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors. And in a rapidly changing situation like the pandemic, it's important for people to know how to stay informed and then how to talk knowledgeably about the situation. And that's what I'd really encourage anyone listening today. You know, think of it as, you know, you have a role to play and it starts with you knowing where to get the truth and then 
the second piece is you speaking the truth. So anyone listening can stop the misinformation by knowing the facts. And I want you to know you can find the latest information on CDC's website. FEMA also has a rumor control website for current myth busting. And, you know, those are some good first places to go for data. If you're a communicator in your personal or business capacity, you should know when and how to respond to myths and rumors and misconceptions. Basically, you want to monitor traditional and social media and conduct environmental scanning to identify possible misinformation. In other words, don't believe everything you hear the moment you hear it, you know, check. Secondly, you want to dispel rumors by immediately providing the accurate information through the appropriate channels. And then thirdly, as a communicator, you want to regularly update information outlets with current information to help them avoid speculation. So you may not be a communicator, but still effective communication, including this managing misinformation, helps reduce risks in situations like this pandemic from everyone. So remember, you you do have a personal role to play. And here's what I would recommend. So I recommend everybody bookmark a couple of pages on the CDC website and get really familiar with them. The first, we've already talked about it a little bit, is the MMWR page. And um, I think, Emily, I think I can provide the link and you can make that available for people. Is that right? Yes, all the resources that you mentioned in, in today's podcast will be available on the Alpha Gamma Delta website under podcast. So if you want any of this information, you can go there. Wonderful, wonderful. So the first is the MMWR page, and the second is the science update page. And each one of these has weekly or sometimes even more often issues that describe the emerging science on various aspects of COVID-19. And they go into detail, and then they connect you with the science. They connect you directly to the studies that are going on. And then when you um, have a question that pops up and you don't know the answer and you can't find the answer on a um, reputable site, another thing you can do is you can reach out to CDC Info and you can send in a question to CDC Info and they will respond back with an answer. Sometimes it takes them a couple of days, so it's definitely worth it to go and try to find your answer yourself on the CDC website. But um, when you can't find the answer, certainly reach out to CDC Info. The third thing I'd suggest is join the Partner Call Listserv. So this is near and dear to my heart because this is the program I've been working directly with for the past, it's been about three months now. We host a weekly call every single Monday at three o'clock Eastern, and we have a variety of topics and speakers, all from CDC, to give you insight and guidance into the newest scientific developments. So, for example, on October 19th, our topic was slowing the spread at U.S. colleges and universities. And we had almost 2,800 people join that phone call. Afterwards, um, we always post the recording on YouTube so that if you miss it or if you just want to go back and see some of the, the past issues, you can find it on YouTube and you can watch the, the calls that you missed. This partner call is a really easy way to get a podcast-like look into the latest CDC science and um, we can make that, that link available to you. The other thing I want to mention is I'm just scratching the surface with the information I've given you. There's there's actual podcasts. There's more than 2,000 web pages on cdc.gov. It can be overwhelming, but now you at least have a couple places to start. I would you know, encourage you to pick one or two of those, and then you'll see your myth-busting superpowers increase exponentially overnight. You'll all be experts. 
<laughs> so back to your original question, though, you know, the biggest rumors have really been about things like the effectiveness of masks, the ability of children to transmit the virus, and the supposed harmlessness of the virus to young, healthy people. There's conflicting information for all three of these issues, and it creates um, a concerning situation. Masks absolutely are effective in slowing transmission. And there's a new study highlighted on the science update page. Look at the November 10th issue, and it compares the effectiveness of different kinds of masks. And it's, it's not just talking about are they effective for the general public, but are they effective for the person wearing the mask? I know that's been kind of a question. They are absolutely effective for both the wearer and those around them. So take a look at that, November 10th, science update. And then um, on the second issue, children can absolutely transmit the virus. And for example, there's a, there's a family reunion study that's subject of one of the MN WRs and the index patient, you know, that's the, the first patient, they call it the index patient. The index patient was only 13 years old. Um, there were, I think it was 11 or 12 people who all were staying in a house for a family reunion. And pretty much everyone in the house was affected by the virus. And the index patient was a 13 year old. Wow. Yep, that's that's it. And then the third one that we were talking about, you know, we're we're not really sure what the long-term effects of the virus are going to be to young people who get it, but we've seen heart conditions and other concerning after effects, which we need to learn more about. This virus has only been around a few months and we don't really have any long-term data about it. This is a time though to avoid any kind of unnecessary risk while we still have more questions and answers. And then to follow the guidance that has been developed based on the data that we do have. Hopefully that helps. I think it will. And I know I've got a lot of new web pages to go check out after this. <laughs> well, a really big question for a lot of people is when will there be a vaccine? And not only that, but once there's a vaccine, when can the general public expect to have access to that? Yeah, these are great questions, and we'd all like to have more specific answers to those questions. Right now, you know, the goal for Operation Warp Speed, which is the U.S. government's effort to help develop, make, and distribute the vaccine, is to deliver safe vaccines that work. And, you know, there's this hope and expectation that maybe some of the first supply of those would become available before the end of the year. We don't know that that's going to happen. It's again, it's a hope. And I'm sure you've heard things in the in the news lately about various vaccines. We're going to be waiting until a vaccine is actually authorized and approved by the FDA and then recommended by CDC. So this is a we're in that time where the manufacturers are testing the vaccines. And before you know it, we'll be in the, the time where we will be distributing those vaccines. We know that there's going to be limited availability at first, and then that supplies will increase over time. And, you know, all adults should be able to get vaccinated, hopefully later in 2021. I know that's, you know, that's what we're talking about right now is how to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Regarding vaccines, we've actually seen a rise in vaccine hesitancy in recent years, and yep. currently there's some discussion of the COVID-19 vaccine not being safe, and that's sparking further hesitancy. How can the public be assured of the COVID-19 vaccine's safety? 
this is another great question. Um, you know, I just have to say safety is a top priority and that federal partners everywhere are working to make sure that COVID-19 vaccines are safe. And it's helpful to talk through how safety is ensured at all steps of the vaccine process. So currently clinical trials are evaluating the investigational COVID-19 vaccines in many thousands of study participants. And when they're doing a trial, they're trying to generate scientific data and other information for the FDA so that they can determine um, the safety and effectiveness of the various vaccine options. The clinical trials are being conducted according to rigorous standards set forth by the FDA in their June 2020 guidance document. The title of it is Development and Licensure of Vaccines to Prevent COVID-19. You can go look that up if you want to know what the, the requirements are. Basically, if FDA determines that a vaccine meets the safety and effectiveness standards, it can make the vaccines available for use in the U.S. by approval or emergency use authorization. You may have heard of that. EUA. Have you heard of that? That's what that means, emergency use authorization. So after a vaccine is either authorized or approved for emergency use, many vaccine safety monitoring systems will watch for what we call adverse events. Those are basically just side effects. And the continued monitoring can pick up on adverse events that may not have been seen in the clinical trials. You know, the, the trials are, are, again, they're like thousands of people. It's a lot. But, you know, if there's a side effect that only happens in um, a small part of the population, it may not occur during the trials. And that's why we have these monitoring and systems after the fact when we start to see millions of people getting vaccinated. We have more data and we want to track what's going on with these adverse events. So basically, if an adverse event is seen, experts will quickly study it, further assess it to see if it's a true safety concern. And then the experts will decide whether changes are needed in the vaccine or in the vaccine recommendations. The monitoring is critical to help ensure that the benefits continue to outweigh the risks for people who receive the vaccines. And we're also, CDC is also working to expand safety surveillance through new systems and additional information sources, as well as by scaling up existing safety monitoring systems. On the partner call last week, we heard about all of these, including a cell phone app that contacts you and asks you questions about how you're feeling after you've been vaccinated. And um, I just think that technology can really help us. And um, we're, I know CDC is working on uh, having technology be part of um, how we're monitoring safety. If you are interested in more of, about vaccines, the best thing I could suggest is that you look back on YouTube and find the partner call from, from last week and listen to the experts. They do talk about vaccine hesitancy. They talk about vaccine safety. And um, it's a good little short listen. Absolutely. And again, that will be linked on alphagamadelta.org slash podcasts. So you can go back and find all of that. Well, Liz, this might seem like a silly question, but why should people get vaccinated? Won't relying on herd immunity be enough? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not a silly question, especially with all we've heard about herd immunity. I'm going to point you to CDC COVID-19 science update page, and there you can find accurate information. In the November 3rd issue, CDC shared an article that touched on this. The article towards the end, it's from a publication called Frontiers in Immunology. The authors discuss 
a variety of elements that factor into whether populations ever reach natural herd immunity thresholds. And the authors conclude that the most practical way to achieve herd immunity is through vaccination. And on top of this, CDC is studying the potential amount of herd immunity that's already out there by monitoring blood samples across the nation. This is called a seroprevalence survey, and it's showing that the highest potential percentages of immunity aren't sufficient. They're not, we're not reaching herd immunity. We're not close right now. So the reason to get vaccinated is that it will help your body ward off the virus and it will help the community as a whole reduce the number of people who could be carrying the virus unknowingly and spreading it to other people. Absolutely. Those sound like great reasons to me. Well, we're on our way into winter and colder weather and a lot of people will be spending more time indoors. What should we expect to see with the number of COVID cases? Well, you've, you've already seen this um, happening, Emily. It's not a happy topic, but let's look at an example. So the Southern Hemisphere um, has experienced an increase in cases during their winter compared to their summer. So we look at that pattern as kind of a bellwether of what we can expect here in the U.S. Also, we know a couple of things about the virus that point to the likelihood that we'll see an increase in cases. One, it seems to spread indoors more than outdoors. The conditions are more favorable in that people are closer, air is being shared, and the walls are keeping the virus from UV light and dilution more than in the great outdoors. Number two, it persists longer in lower humidity environments like we generally see in the winter months. And then on top of that, people are kind of tired of isolating and social distancing because of the length of time the virus has been present. We need to be vigilant, though, and keep up the mitigation measures, even though we all have a sort of COVID fatigue, if you know what I mean. One thing you can do personally is to think about ways you'll continue to spend time outdoors and continue to get your recommended 30 minutes of physical activity each day. Keeping healthy is a good strategy for fighting off any illness. So a personal focus on your own physical activity, eating right, and mental health, and connecting with people without being physically close, those will all help each one of us weather the colder months and prevent the spread of the virus. Here's a little bit of science. I know you guys like hearing about the MNWRs and the science updates now. In the October 2nd science update, Epidemiology, it, it references a study describing how vascular chronic disease factors, including hypertension, diabetes, smoking, drinking, physical inactivity, and overweight status were associated with an increased risk of severe COVID-19 illness. So basically, this study is saying that staying healthy with physical activity, healthy eating, not smoking, not abusing alcohol, actually puts you in a better condition to combat the virus if you do get it. So basically, what I'm saying is stay healthier and it'll help you stay healthier. Isn't that a great, <laughs> that's a great thing to say. <laughs> that's a great slogan there. <laughs> Well, also around this time is the annual flu season, which is usually bad enough on its own. Do you have any concerns about the flu season coinciding with the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, flu has caused millions of illnesses, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations, and tens of thousands of deaths in the U.S. each year. What will happen this fall and winter is uncertain with regard to COVID and the flu, but CDC is preparing for COVID-19 and flu to spread at the same time. So far, 
the flu season. It's been a good flu season in that flu activity has been low. And people that I've talked to have attributed this to the fact that we're separating from people. You know, we're, we're wearing masks. We're not doing all the things that tend to spread the flu um, in general. So that's a good thing. With those issues with the flu, how can we best mitigate those? Yeah. So um, now more than ever, everyone needs to do their part to prevent the spread of any respiratory illness. And I count flu and COVID-19 in in that category. And basically getting a flu vaccine will be more important than ever for protecting your own health, especially if you are at high risk of developing serious flu complications. And it will also, you know, the flu vaccine, it helps you to protect people around you as well. That's definitely good to hear. Well, when I think of colder weather, I also think of the start of the holiday season, and that usually means more family and group gatherings, or at least it does in the typical year. What are the best precautions that we can take to prevent COVID-19 transmissions in the coming months? Yeah, so let's start with kind of a definition of families. Families can consist of many different households, and a household is kind of the relevant unit when you're considering COVID-19 prevention guidance. In fact, a small gathering of family and friends were recently identified by the CDC director as an important cause of the recent national increase in infections. Family members from different households, they should practice social distancing. They should use face masks and maintain the same hygiene and disinfection practices as they would with unrelated persons from different households. I'm thinking, you know, your Aunt Jenny, she might be your um, your aunt, but she lives in a different house. And so, you know, she's family, but, you know, for the virus, you need to keep your distance. Sorry, Aunt Jenny. And you need to wear a mask. Of course, you know, everyone needs to be monitoring for symptoms of COVID-19. And when people are symptomatic, they need to isolate from other people and for 14 days. I know that's a long time, but you know, you can watch a lot of Netflix in 14 days, right? <laughs> They've got some great new uh, content out right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is, I remember reading, this is the family reunion study I wanted to tell you about. So the, there was four families in a house and 12 of the 14 people in the house developed symptoms or tested positive. So one person who was waiting, that was the 13-year-old, was waiting for test results and went to the event anyway, and ended up spreading the virus to 11 other people. Now, here's a little bright spot in this story, though. There were six people who visited the family reunion. This is another family unit that attended the family reunion event, but they stayed outside the whole time, and they didn't stay in the house with the others, and none of those six people got sick. So stories like this show that mitigation measures really help. So things like staying outside, not not living in the same house as people that you know are sick that, or that may be sick. These are great things to keep in mind as we kind of come to the holidays. And you guys know all this, but here's the hard part. It's that if you know you're not feeling well, don't visit with your relatives. And I, I know, I, you know, I want to see grandma, I want to see all my family, but if you even feel a tickle in your throat, you need to play it safe and stay away from even small gatherings. And here it is again, you know, this is that, you know, becoming an adult thing that we all have to do. It's going to take self-awareness and self-discipline at a time when all we want to do is forget the stressors and relax with the comfort of food and family and friends. But each one of us 
has to be strong. And I encourage you to be strong. Even if you have the smallest symptom, if you have been exposed, if you think you may have been exposed, if you're waiting for a test result or you're feeling those symptoms, or, you know, even maybe from a protective standpoint, maybe you have underlying conditions that would increase your risk. Don't host or attend in-person celebrations. So, you know, some of the suggestions are get on Zoom and talk to your relatives on Zoom, have a little Zoom party. You can ask someone to bring you back a slice of pie, um, but basically don't go to a party. Be smart, be strong, stay safe. And like we talked about before, you don't want to be the one person who spread COVID-19 to the whole family. Well, Liz, we're at the end of our program, but before we go, I'd like to ask you one question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what is your purpose? Oh, wow. Okay. My purpose. You know, I, I think my purpose is to help people. And as an architect working for CDC, I have always looked for ways that I can use my design expertise to help people live a healthier life. Sometimes it's my knowledge of public health, which is rubbing off from, you know, all the professionals I'm around. <laughs> Sometimes it's the public health that I share with designers to build healthier buildings. And sometimes I'm helping public health people understand the opportunities in the design of, you know, buildings and the management of our real estate to help improve health there. I think this is my purpose. It's translating public health to architecture and architecture to public health. And that really is more than a full-time job. And right now it's definitely giving me a tremendous sense of purpose and an endless opportunity to help others. Absolutely. That's such a great purpose to hear. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being on here today and talking with us about all things COVID-19. I know I've learned a lot and I've had a lot of my questions answered and I hope our listeners have too. Sure thing, Emily. It was, it was a pleasure to be here today and I hope it helps somebody. I'm sure it will. And if you're listening and you want any more information or one of the links or resources that Liz mentioned really piqued your interest, you can find all of that on alphagamadelta.org slash podcast. You'll find it under this episode's tab and you can look through all of those links. We'll have those available for you to go and inform yourself. That's all for today. Have a great day and stay safe. Love, Lead, Listen is recorded and produced at Alpha Gamma Delta International Headquarters and is generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. Episodes are released every two weeks, so make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. If you like this show, make sure to rate us five stars on iTunes and don't forget to share it with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode or any other feedback, send us an email at podcast at alphagammadelta.org. I'm your host, Emily Weiss, and that's all for today. See you next time.